0: Between the Liner Notes is sponsored by Bedphones. I listen to a lot of music, and one of my favorite times to listen is when I'm lying in bed trying to fall asleep. Until now, every pair of headphones I've owned was too uncomfortable for bed. If you lie on your side or stomach, sleeping with headphones on is nearly impossible. But Bedphones has changed the game. It's engineers designed a headphone that is so thin it practically disappears between your ears and the pillow. Now I can listen to some relaxing music or my favorite podcasts and fall asleep comfortably with my bedphones on. Please visit bedphones.com and use promo code BTLN10 as in the numbers 10 to receive $10 off your new pair of bedphones.
1: Former record producer Lou Perlman has died in prison, Billboard reports. The manager of some of the hottest boy bands of the 90s, including NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys, died behind bars on Friday, according to the Federal Bureau of Prison Records. (laughs) Perlman was serving a 25-year prison sentence after being convicted for his involvement in a multi-million dollar Ponzi scheme in 2008.
2: He was heavy set, short, heavy set man, wore little wire rimmed glasses, and he just kind of reminded me a little bit like Santa Claus. Some of these folks have waited five years and have lost everything. My clients, the Backstreet Boys, and Aaron Carter's losses were millions and significant
3: and real to them.
0: He is a real visionary. And the difference between a dreamer
1: and a visionary is a visionary puts his money where his mouth is.
2: He should be put in jail and kept in jail until he dies. I'm going to
3: introduce you to a man with a golden touch. Meet Lou Pearlman.
0: Hi, I'm Matthew Billy, and this is Between the Liner Notes, a podcast about music, why it is the way it is, and how it got to be that way. This show is distributed by the Goat Rodeo Network. There are a few explicit words in this episode, so if you have children around, please consider listening with your headphones on. Louis J. Perlman was born on June 19, 1954, to a working-class family in Flushing, Queens. Perlman didn't have the easiest childhood. From birth, he was a heavyset kid, and the other children in the neighborhood often called him names like Fat Louie.
3: He wasn't a popular kid, right? He was um, a little doughy and kind of awkward and not exactly the most coordinated kid, and his best friend Alan Gross tells a story about how one winter, they were all sledding, and Lou insisted on you know, going super fast by himself down this one you know, sledding track, and he ended up busting himself up real bad, and all the other kids were kind of just pointing and laughing at him.
0: That's Tyler Gray, the author of the book The Hit Charade, Lou Perlman, Boy Bands, and the Biggest Ponzi Scheme in U.S. History.
3: In a nutshell, he was a total nerd, and um, he kind of lied or expanded the truth in order to kind of make himself seem cool the one thing that he had going for him was he was art garfunkel's cousin and that was sort of his claim to fame so like kids would want to get next to him to get next to art
0: even if lou had to use his cousin's fame or make up stories about himself he was eventually able to overcome his awkwardness and make friends one of his closest was alan gross who lived in the same apartment building The two shared a love of aircraft, and their building's proximity to the Flushing Airport gave them a front-row seat to watch airplanes and blimps take off and land.
3: So, they would hang out at Alan's place and they would watch these blimps take off and land. And Alan was obsessed, still is to this day, in, a, in the most awesome way, with blimps and how they work and the mechanics of them. And, you know, for some kids it's trains, for other kids it's rocket ships. For Alan it was blimps, and for Lou it was Alan. And, you know, Lou kind of used Alan's fascination to get in the door and then he sort of elbowed him out of the way and sort of put himself in the front. and And that's how he eventually got into the business of blimps. <music>
0: Despite his connection to music royalty, Perlman didn't start out in the record business. After studying accounting in college, he decided to make his fortune in the airship industry. One of his first endeavors was Airship Enterprises, a blimp company. His business plan centered around selling ads on the side of a blimp. But Perlman needed two
3: things for his plan to work, a client and a blimp. Having enough business acumen gave him just enough to be able to Finagle the Jordash brothers into supporting his first blimp effort, which, you know, the whole deal with blimps in the business is you put an ad on the side of them and they're highly visible and it's like a flying billboard. You know, so Lou sold them that space on his first
0: blimp. The Jordash clothing company partnered with Airship Enterprises based on Perlman's promise that a top of the line blimp built by an experienced German dirigible manufacturer would carry the Jordash logo across the skies. The photos Perlman showed the Jordash brothers of his German blimp painted that very picture. Problem was, he didn't own the blimp in the photos, or any blimp. His plan was to use the money from the Jordash deal to fund his blimp purchase. But the deal wasn't big enough for an expensive German-made airship. So instead, Perlman purchased a used industrial logging balloon that had been designed to lift felled trees out of a dense forest. The logging balloon looked nothing like a blimp, so he ordered it hacked in two and then had manufacturers reconnect the pieces with scraps to form the traditional oblong shape. A metal fabricator designed fins and a gondola to replicate a much sturdier German airship. One of the
3: engineers who worked on the blimp described it as, quote, a piece of crap. Need Frankenstein to blimp together to sort of make it snazzy for them. He was like, you know, I'll paint the thing gold, like, because that's your color, Jordache. We'll put your logo on there. So we got a hold of this, like, metallic gold paint, but, like, gold paint is heavy. So he painted this blimp in this super heavy gold paint, and it weighed it down. Not that it was going to fly that great to begin with. The day it was supposed to take off and land in Battery Park which was at the time a new development in lower manhattan but at this point it was sort of this hot new thing and he was going to his pilot was going to fly the blimp to battery park city and the models were going to come filing out and walk down the stairs and they were going to have a big press conference about jordash and everybody was going to high five and get rich on
0: the morning of october 8th the frankenstein blimp adorned with heavy gold paint and the jordash logo was ready to make its maiden voyage
3: Instead, the blimp took off, and it immediately launched into a death spiral.
1: A golden burgundy blimp hired to advertise the Jordache look crashed on its first flight Wednesday. The blimp took off at 8.15 a.m. on its way to a noontime fashion show at Manhattan's Battery Park. At about 600 feet and a half mile from the hangar, the blimp began turning to its right, and the pilot, James Booza, made a controlled descent. It apparently was a control problem, said Nick Grand, a witness, he started going around in circles to his right, increasingly tighter circles, and then he came down. The pilot escaped injury when the 170-foot blimp crashed into a garbage dump and impaled itself on a pine tree. It was just lying there now, all deflated, Grand said. The Associated Press, October 9th, 1980.
3: He's the master of spin, and he was like, and he presses good press, I think, and they got... They got a lot of attention because the giant blimp crashed and and it had the Jordache logo on it. I think he tried to spin to the Jordache brothers that the press was good press. And uh, they didn't feel the same way, I don't think.
0: Perlman was also able to spin his way out of a potentially devastating financial loss. Before the Battery Park flight, he'd taken out an insurance policy on the Frankenstein blimp. But the insurance company rejected his claim, pointing out that the airship that fell to Earth was not the same as the German blimp it had agreed to cover. During a lengthy trial, Perman revealed that he had initially insured a German airship. But before the blimp's maiden voyage, he sent the insurance company detailed specs for the new blimp. The insurance company had agreed to insure the new design, but never revised the coverage amount probably because they would have lowered the policy amount and didn't want to return the $18,000 Perlman had already paid them. Suspiciously, Perlman never asked about lowering the premium either, leaving many to speculate that he wanted his blimp to crash. The court eventually ruled in his favor, awarding him $2.5 million. At age 27, Lou Perlman became a millionaire. Perlman used the insurance money to buy a real blimp and eventually created a profitable airship company. He signed large contracts with clients such as McDonald's, Budweiser, and MetLife. With his newfound riches, he purchased a new car, a cornflower blue Rolls Royce, and new clothing, most of it also cornflower blue. Feeling confident in his entrepreneurial skills, Perlman set his sights on a more profitable and riskier company.
3: He thought if he could run a successful blimp business, that the next logical big step was airlines. So... He would lease these planes for himself and then do a markup to have people charter the planes. Eventually, he would use that airline company to gain investors.
0: Perlman's new company, Transcontinental Airlines, never actually owned any planes of its own. But that didn't stop it from becoming a successful subleasing business. Many wealthy clients rented Transcon's planes, including one that would stoke lose interest in an entirely different entrepreneurial direction.
3: So he has the airline, and one day he charters a flight for these young guys who he learns are in a singing group. And the way he tells the story is their manager pays him in cash with just a huge, you know, wad of cash. In my mind it's like a silver briefcase or something, I don't think that, that was the case. And he's like, you know, I gotta ask, what business are you in? You know, you seem to be pretty well off. And the guy was like, oh, this is this band, New Kids on the Block. And the guy was Maurice Starr, their manager. And Lou's like, is that working out for you? He's like, I haven't heard of them, he goes, well, you will. They're getting huge. And he's like making money hand over fist. And Lou thought, you know, this guy could do it. I could do it. He went where you go when you want to find uh eager pool of talent, but not a whole lot of competition, he went to Orlando, Florida. And that's where, you know, in the shadow of Disney, he was able to find, he felt like he had a fertile hunting grounds for raw talent that he could develop into artists. He worked with some more established people in the town, like, you know, Gene Tansy Williams was somebody who knew talent in the area and had a good eye for it.
0: Long before Pearlman arrived in Orlando, Gene Tansy Williams had established herself as a leading talent manager in the area. Jean's experience and one of her talented clients named AJ McLean caught Lou's attention.
2: It was in December of 92 um, that I get a phone call from a gentleman by the name of Lou Perlman with his cue. Hi, Gene, this is Lou Perlman. And uh, I said, hi, I'm you know, glad to hear from you. And he said, I understand that you have signed AJ as a manager. I said, yes, I have. And he said, well, I'd love to talk to you because I don't know if they told you, but I'm trying to put a new boy group together. And I understand, you know, you've been in the industry for many, many years. And he even said, I've checked you out, which kind of made me giggle a little bit. See, me And so I think you'd be the right person to help me put this group together and come on board as a manager of the group and a co-producer with me. And I agreed. <music> I went to his house. Of course, I when we pulled up in the driveway. I was like, oh, my God, this guy's rich. I mean, it was a beautiful home. Walked in, he's very, uh, very kind and open kind of guy, you know, kind of like a big teddy bear. He was heavyset, short, heavyset man, wore little wire rim glasses. And he, he just kind of reminded me a little bit like Santa Claus, you know what I mean, he got a jolly old guy. He's like a kid, okay? He was excited, like a little boy's excitement. In his living room, he had a gold Monopoly board, a gold chess set. He had a life-size costume of C-3PO in his living room, a pool table. Uh, soda machines. I mean, he was like a little kid, but very excited about the whole thing, so I did get a very good first impression of him.
0: Believing her new boy band project would monopolize all her time, and that a partnership contract with Lou Pearlman was forthcoming, Tansy Williams decided to free her 26 clients, including A.J. McLean, from their management contracts.
2: The contract was written up, and it was kind of like pushed to the side, and then, then an excuse would come up, oh, I want to make a couple of changes, help make things better for Eugene, blah, blah, blah. And this went on for several months, to be honest with you. So, yes, I had a contract, but Mr. Perlman never signed it. The first week of January, I put calls out to all the agents I knew because I'd been working with them as a manager of talent.
3: It was like an ad in the paper, searching for young talent, dancing, singing, good-looking young men who wanted to potentially come be part of a band, and they, for a couple of days, I believe, and maybe even longer, they rolled through artists who would come to auditions.
2: Within two days, we had, I guess, maybe 60 boys come in and audition. We held the auditions at Mr. Perlman's Blimp Warehouse in Kissimmee, Florida. And within the two days, I'd found five kids. The Backstreet Boys were put together in two days.
0: Tansy Williams selected five boys from the auditions. Her former client, A.J. McLean, Howie D., Nick Carter, and two other boys. The final two members of Backstreet, Kevin Richardson and Brian Luttrell, were swapped in later after two of the originals didn't work out. Once Tansy Williams selected the band members, Perlman created a family atmosphere, casting himself as Big Papa.
2: He took care of us. He would take us out to dinner and, you know, pay the bills and buy the kids food and clothing and whatever they needed. And he had a stretch limo and he had two uh, Rolls Royces, a Bentley and another Rolls. And so we got treated like royalties. He picked the kids up from the band house in a stretch limousine and the kids just loved it. He took them up in a blimp and they just loved it. I mean, he really, uh, total personification of a very wealthy, loving, caring, giving man.
0: In exchange for the lavish lifestyle Pearlman provided, the Backstreet Boys kept up a laborious regimen.
3: I think it was like a hell of a lot of like boot camp style dancing, singing, training, right? And um, they were getting instruction. They were getting dance instruction. They were working on choreography. They were singing. It was kind of a grueling schedule, if I remember correctly.
0: Pearlman rented a house for the boys, which functioned more like a training camp than a home. In the morning, they would study with tutors, and after lunch, they would practice singing and dancing. Tansy Williams worked just as hard overseeing the boys' training.
2: He used me to put the group together, which I did. I hired them. He had nothing to say. I was the one that picked the boys, okay? I worked with them. I hired, I got a band house in my neighborhood. They paid the rent on it. I hired, got a house. We rehearsed in that house. I cooked dinner for these kids. I was like a mother to these children. I did everything. Choreographers, teachers, tutors, vocal coaches, songwriters. I brought everything in and I brought them to New York with Perlman and they auditioned for several agents and I did all that for them.
0: After a trip to New York where Tansy Williams booked the Backstreet Boys auditions with an array of talent agencies, Perlman gave the boys a short break to recharge. But a month later, when rehearsals were set to ramp up again, Tansy Williams noticed something was different.
2: We get back from New York, June, around that time, June, and um, I'm calling the kids on their phones, and nobody's answering, nobody's answering, nobody's answering, and I'm getting frustrated. So I call Lou Perlman's office, and I said, I cannot get the boys together now. It's great. They had a month off. We've got to get back in rehearsal. Come on. they got to stay sharp. We've got to keep them sharp. And he says, okay, okay, um, I'll get them together. And um, it was July 28, 1993, He called a rehearsal at the uh, Blimp Warehouse in Kissimmee, and we get to the warehouse, my husband Lou and I, and he's turning on the boards, getting the mics hot and all that, and suddenly the door opens, and in walks the kids, the mothers, and they all were looking down at the ground, and, I mean, I knew something was up. We go into an office. They all walk in. All the moms, the kids are standing, leaning against the wall, and Perm, you know, sits on a corner of a desk, and he says, Gene, he said, you know we love you. Oh, and we had stock by this point. And um, he said, you know we love you, and we, you know, we never want to hurt you, and you'll always be part of the family, and you still have stock in the company. You know, you're good, you're good. But we really feel it's time now we want to bring in a, a bigger management company. The room started spinning for me. Um, at, at one point, I literally was watching people talking and hearing nothing. It was like a scene from a movie. I was in a tunnel vision at that point. I just felt my entire world fall apart. Just like under my seat, somebody pulled the floor out. And then they all left, and Perlman comes up to me and puts his hand on my shoulder. You know, we love you. We're family, and you still have stock. You still have the stock. You're going to be fine. Well, turns out the stock was useless because he closed the Florida Corporation, and opened a new one in Delaware.
0: The people Tansy Williams trusted most had abandoned her, leaving her with nothing but the paper her unsigned contract was printed on. Perlman hired a new management team for the Backstreet Boys, who soon landed them a record deal with Zomba Jive Records. The label released their first single, We've Got It Going On, in 1995. The song peaked at number 69 on the Billboard charts and soon slid off into oblivion. The label's interest in the group waned, so Perlman devised a plan.
3: It took them a little while to sort of start to gain momentum, and I think that's when they were going overseas to do shows over there, and that was sort of when the export idea came to be because it was at a time in you know music where it was like everything was harsh and grunge, and we were still in the thick of like the guitar and flannel kind of era, and here we're sort of polished pretty pop boys and it really wasn't where the world in the u.s where the where the u.s mind was anyway and so in germany they were down for the polished pop acts from from the get-go so germany and europe are sort of where he decided to take them to get them used to being the superstars that they would become
0: Zomba jive records wasn't willing to invest more money in the backstreet boys so in an unprecedented high-stakes gamble Perlman financed the group's European tour himself, bringing his total investment in the boys to $4 million. By 1997, the Backstreet Boys had sold 8.5 million albums overseas and consistently performed in sold-out venues. Lou's gamble had paid off.
3: When he's hustling with the boys for a couple of years in Germany, and they get on a bus and girls are banging on the doors of the bus or the limo, and, like, it was sort of um, time to hit the big leagues.
0: The boys returned to Orlando and for the first time in two years, when they arrived at the airport, there was no crowd of screaming teenage girls waiting for them. No one in the U.S. knew who they were. To break into the American market, they planned to release an album titled Backstreet's Back, which was largely a compilation of their European hits. The album debuted at number one and eventually sold 14 million copies in the United States. By 1998, Lou Perlman had become a music mogul.
3: I'm going to introduce you to a man with a golden touch,
2: a modern-day Midas. King of Pop has actually been Michael Jackson's title for some time now, but now some people are beginning to apply it to a new king who isn't a singer or a performer and who has no musical training at all. Meet Lou Perlman.
3: All right, how you doing? How you doing?
1: Okay?
2: Founder and CEO of the transcontinental
3: Companies a billion-dollar teen music empire.
1: All we've done is we've
3: taken a concept that's always been there, with the girls, guys, loving music, and loving great-looking people, and taken that forward and maybe change the music genre a little bit. But the bottom line is, the result's the same.
0: Pearlman capitalized on his success with the Backstreet Boys and began to sign more acts to his record label, Transcontinental Records. He recycled the same formula used with Backstreet to create another boy band named Insync. He reasoned that Coke had its Pepsi, McDonald's had its Burger King, and Backstreet Boys would eventually have their competition too. so why shouldn’t he own them both? After Insync’s success, Perlman continued to clone boy bands, including one group that he assembled on the reality TV show making the band, named O Town. He created pop group after pop group, and with very few
3: exceptions, the acts were always composed of attractive young men. He would hire these sort of young, attractive men to be his drivers, and some of those guys, like, were hired under the promise that they were getting an entree into the Lou Pearlman pop machine and that they would get their break one day. They were just sort of driving. It's kind of like the mafia. (laughs) You know, like, you drive the car, then you work your way up, and you become a boss. Keep in mind, Lou was also sort of in the business of, like, the Chippendales dancers at the time, too. So he had this, like, keen eye for, like, buff young men.
0: Perlman's keen eye for buff young men led to rumors and allegations of sexual misconduct with the boys in his groups, many of whom were underage.
3: I don't think the guy was ever emotionally mature enough to have a real romantic relationship. I think he was, like, a man-child. He did creepy shit. But I don't know if he did it like in a mature adult sexual predator way that people have associated him with. It doesn't mean it wasn't creepy as hell for those boys to live in a house with him and like get a weird ab massage from Lou or like have Lou like do a thing where he shows up during a sleepover and wearing nothing but a towel and then wants to jump on the bed and wrestle and the towel flies off, right? Like that's a thing that really happened that Lou joked about and said like, well, there's never been a towel that would really fit around me. Like that was sort of his response to that.
2: I'm a mother of two sons. My sons were 9 and 11 at the time, and I cared about the Backstreet Boys like they were my own children. If I had ever seen anything out of line or any impropriety towards any of these boys, I would have called him out. I would have blown the whistle on him, and you know what? He knew that, and I'm going to tell you years later, talking to someone from his organization who's a dear friend of mine who shall remain nameless right now, he confirmed that that was Luperman's biggest fear, and that's why he let me go, because he knew that I had morals, I'm a Christian person, and I would have never put up with it if I ever saw anything.
3: Is that a like Chris Farley-like goofball, or is it somebody who doesn't quite know how to deal with the own sort of sexual you know, impulses in his head because he never kind of, like, matured that way? Is he gay, straight, just a predator, and it doesn't matter? I I don't think it was ever clear. You've never seen anybody come directly out and say, he did this to me. There's no smoking gun there.
0: Perlman always denied such accusations, and the police never charged him with criminal sexual misconduct. None of the Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, or any other of Perlman's groups ever directly accused him of sexual harassment. Almost all of them, however, have accused him of misrepresentation and fraud. Even after achieving fame, the Backstreet Boys maintained a grueling schedule. Publicly, Perlman commended the boys for their hard work. But he was less generous with financial rewards. Here's a recording of Lou Perlman. They go about their day practicing for rehearsals, maybe for a show that evening, uh, doing more press during that day, meet and greets, um, all these different things. And it's a long day, and at the end of the day, they plop down in their bed which they don't know where they are sometimes you know they forget what city they're in or what country they're in and if you watch an artist
3: they just go through a lot of a lot of stress sometimes and they really take it very well so there was a dinner where like these guys have been working for like a year and they had been touring and show after show after show hard work like legitimate hard work and um Lou wanted to have them to a dinner, and it was they knew that they were going to be getting paid, finally, for all this sort of work. So they had, like, caviar wishes and champagne dreams, right? Or maybe that's the other way around. But um, they were spending that money in their head that they knew they made. But I think all told, if I'm remembering it correctly, once the envelopes went around at dinner that night and they opened them, their jaws hit the ground. Because I think all told, something like three hundred thousand for the entire band, which meant they each earned less than hundred thousand. They probably could have made about that much, you know, at an entry-level position at some corporation. You know, when they kind of asked him why, he started to cite all these expenses that he had put up to make them famous, and that those were all recoupable um, expenses, you know, based on the contract that they had signed, in some cases signed real fast.
0: But when Backstreet's lawyers analyzed the contracts, they discovered that recoupable expenses accounted for just a fraction of the money Perlman was taking.
3: Not only was Lou paying himself from the revenues from the band as a manager, he had actually contractually written himself in as the sixth member of the band. So he was getting double paid. Like he was a member of NSYNC and a member of Backstreet Boys and their manager. So he got twice what they got of everything, even if when there were profits to divide. And that didn't sit real well with anybody. And so that's when, you know, NSYNC and Backstreet Boys both ended up suing him.
0: Lou settled with both groups out of court. He gave them their freedom in exchange for a piece, albeit smaller than before, of all their future earnings. The exact details have never been disclosed. Pearlman's boy bands were not the only ones to take him to court. Years after being kicked out of the Backstreet Boys organization, Jean Tansy Williams filed a suit in hopes of recovering the money owed to her.
2: Oh, I had to watch this videotape years later. She tried to say I wasn't even involved with the group, I had nothing to do with it, In his deposition. He even referred to me when asked, well, what was her position? Oh, I don't know, I guess you could call her the maid? He called me the maid.
0: Depositions from other witnesses refuted Perlman's claims giving Tansy Williams some leverage in the court case. Eventually, like the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC did before, they settled out of court.
2: My lawyers did the forensic accounting on it, and technically I was owed something like $17.3 million. I can assure you I was paid pennies, and when I say pennies, I literally mean pennies on the dollar, and I settled out of court, and it took 11 years to do that.
0: Between the Liner Notes is sponsored by Bedphones. When Bedphones design their headphones, they recognize that everyone's ear is shaped differently. That's why Bedphones attach to your ear with a gentle, rubber-coated memory wire that is infinitely adjustable for a custom fit. Not only does the memory wire keep the headphones in place while you sleep, but you can work out in them as well without them constantly falling off your ear. Bedphones. Infinitely adjustable. Infinitely comfortable. Please visit Bedphones.com and use promo code BTLN10 as in the numbers one, zero, to receive $10 off your new pair of bed phones. Between the Liner Notes is also sponsored by Pippa. If you have a podcast of your own, Pippa is a super simple way to host and share it with the world. They have detailed analytics, they make it easy to switch from whatever host you're using now, and best of all, it's free. Full disclosure Between the Liner Notes is currently hosted by Pippa. Please visit Pippa.io to join. That's P-I-P-P-A dot I-O. Although Perlman's music empire may have lost two of its biggest groups, his reputation as a mogul didn't
3: lose any of its luster. And then he had this reputation as this King Midas of pop who could, like, create these pop acts out of whole cloth and they would sell millions and millions of records... He was living off of that reputation pretty heavily, and you know that was sort of allowing him to keep people constantly wanting to join in as a business partner with him or invest in his businesses. Perlman saw
0: all of those people as marks, and true to form, he began devising new ways to take advantage of them.
3: So this is the classic mark of a Ponzi scheme, right? You have to get new investments to pay off old debts. That's sort of where a startup becomes a Ponzi scheme is when you use that new money to pay off old debts. And so his old debts started to catch up with him because he'd cloned the pop music formula a couple of times over and and it started to take on weird traits and, and it didn't really work after a little bit of time. So you know LFO wasn't as super popular as NSYNC, a couple of singers that he'd gotten behind never really caught on and the world has sort of moved past boy bands at that point and Lou's biggest successful business was no longer really making him money, and yet he had all this money sunk into these losing businesses. So he needed cash.
0: He created what he called the Employee Investment Savings Account, or EISA for short. He described it as a typical money market savings account, similar to what a bank would give you, but a little better.
3: He was offering this incentive program to employees of his company, of which there were many because he had so many businesses. And the tale was because we're so I'm so successful and I've learned how to really handle money well. I'm able to offer my employees a savings account that outperforms the market by a couple of percentage points. And then he started to sort of say to friends and family, like, "Hey, you guys, want in? Like, it's supposed to be for my employees, but I can include as many people as I want. And do you guys, you know, I'll I'll do it for you because I like your face or whatever." It started with friends and family around Queens. It grew to his immediate circles. And then he started kind of soliciting this from all sorts of different people. To reinsure investors
0: that their money was safe, Perlman told them that their investment was insured.
3: I mean, Lou told them it's safe, don't worry about it. This whole thing is backed by AIG and um, Lloyds of London, and it's certified by the accounting firm of Cohen & Siegel and Coral Gables, Florida. Here's the certificates showing that these things are certified and um, audited and insured. And um, all of that was bullshit, like photoshopped bullshit. The documents from AIG and Lloyds of London were just like done on his printer. By the mid-2000s, Perlman
0: owned more than 90 businesses, and most of them, including Transcontinental Records, were losing money. After a few hefty lawsuits drained his cash reserves, he no longer had the money to make payments on his loans or pay back his investors.
3: So the banks come knocking on his door and saying, Yo, dude, you got a payment due, or, you know, hey, you need to pay us back this money. The investors are sort of coming to his place of business, like knocking on the door and saying like, hey, I need you to give me something back on the money that I have invested with you, or I need to withdraw a portion of what I have in your savings account, and he stalls. Like he, at some points, like has people at the door who won't let him in.
0: Perlman was getting desperate to find money wherever he could, so he hired an accountant to look at his books.
3: He starts to squeeze money out of any of these multiple businesses that he has, and he's looking for one of them that would be a, he could squeeze some cash out of. And to do that, he hires this accountant, Paul Glover, to come in and audit his businesses so that he can find some pot of money somewhere and maybe stave off some of these people who are clamoring for their investments back.
0: Out of desperation, Perlman gave the accountant full access to Transcontinental's
3: records. Paul starts digging into it, and Paul's like a straight shooter, and he's a forensic accountant, and he's really good. And... As he gets, starts going through these documents, he starts seeing the numbers are just not adding up. Like it just doesn't make sense. Like where's this money coming from? Where's it going to? And by the way, who the hell certified this stuff? Because it, he's seen some bad accounting in his days, but this is really atrocious. And stamped on everything was this firm from Coral Gables, Florida called Cohen and Siegel. So finally he's like, you know, I'm gonna call these guys and figure out like what's going on. He opens up his cell phone, flip phone at the time, and dials up the number for Cohen and Siegel in Coral Gables, and as he hears the phone ring, he puts it to his ear. Um, the phone on Lou's desk rings at the same time, and he's like, "Huh, it's weird." Shuts his phone, opens it up again, dials Cohen and Siegel. Sure enough, the light on Lou's phone on his desk, because he's in Lou's office and Lou's out of town, the phone on Lou's desk lights up and rings, and he's like, "Holy shit!" <laughs> Cohen and Siegel is Lou. Paul Glover realizes this in the room that the supposed firm that was auditing all of Lou's books was Lou and that he had made up an accounting firm. And so he realizes he's staring down a massive fraud. So he shifts his mission that day. And he changes from being a guy working for Lou to a guy whose responsibility was to gather as much evidence as he could in a box that he could carry and get out the door that evening. So he starts pulling documents and putting them in a box. and he takes them out the door.
2: The crumbling
1: financial empire of entertainment icon Lou Pearlman may no longer be his biggest worry. Today, federal and state agents raided Pearlman's downtown Orlando headquarters.
3: Federal and state agents are still inside Lou Pearlman's headquarters in the transcontinental building in the former Church Street station, looking for information that could lead to criminal charges against the music industry mogul. The
0: FBI, IRS and state financial regulators arrived before noon and headed straight to Perlman's offices on the third floor. A short while later, they began loading boxes of records into vans and
3: trucks. Lou hits the road and he runs because he realizes the gig is up. People are banging on the door for money. The very person that he's invited into his innermost sanctum of finance has discovered it's all bullshit. And so Lou goes, gets on a plane. Uh, He ends up in Bali, Indonesia.
0: Perlman checked into a Western resort under a pseudonym, A. Incognito Johnson. He spent his days there in relative boredom, eating at the resort, sunning on the beach, and unable to conduct any business at all. Finally, someone realized that A. Incognito Johnson was actually Lou Perlman.
3: And then one day, this German tourist named Thorsten Eiborg was on vacation in Bali in a hotel He hits up the breakfast buffet, and who does he see Like wearing a triple extra-large cornflower blue t-shirt, same color as this Rolls Royce, going to town on the buffet, but, you know, Lou Pearlman. He's like, I know that guy. That's that pop music guy. This is a German tourist, Lou's as famous in Germany as the boys were. And he's like, he's a wanted man right now. So he calls up the Indonesian authorities, and they come and bust him, like, over continental breakfast and drag him off and um, then he pretty soon gets extradited and um, brought back to the U.S. where he uh, eventually would go on trial. Federal authorities had been searching for Perlman after an arrest warrant was issued on March
0: 2nd. He was flown to Guam overnight and arrived this morning at the Guam International Airport Authority. The fugitive appeared before Judge Tidinko Gatewood in a blue t-shirt and blue pants. As of um, uh, 0600 this morning, a flight came in from Bali, and uh, he was arrested officially by the FBI approximately six o'clock when the flight landed.:
3: So you had a you know a courtroom in Orlando, and in that courtroom were all manner of people who had invested money with him. everybody from big-time investors or relatives of big-time investors. There were you know, elderly people from parts of Florida who had invested their life savings.
1: Boy band promoter turned federal prisoner. Lou Perlman sentenced today for defrauding banks and investors out of as much as $300 million. The judge handed down a 25-year prison sentence on the fraud and conspiracy charges.
3: The judge said his priority is getting money back to the friends, family and retirees bilked out of $200 million. Victim Ted Granowski wept as he spoke in court.
0: This hasn't really affected me personally but has affected my grandchildren because that money was there for their college education. It's gone.
3: I think people showed up and really wanted to hear that there was hope there was some money squirreled away somewhere and that he was going to have to turn it over. And the judge did a really interesting thing when he found him guilty and he sentenced him. $300 million was the amount that he was on the hook for. And so the judge gave him 300 months in jail. And he said, I'll take a month off your sentence for every million dollars you pay back. What it told the people in the audience who had lost their money was, you will very soon see that this guy is not hiding your money somewhere because he would dig it up to save his own freedom. Mary Walters, who lost 175000 does not like the idea.
2: Even if he gets the money back, he should be put in jail and kept in jail until he dies.
3: Federal prosecutors would not say if they found any hidden money. But Perlman's sentence, they say, gives him another chance to pay back investors. But will he? You know, I don't know. Uh, Time will only tell on that. It's hard for people to understand he could blow $300 million, but he did. And maybe there's some little piece here or there or something. And and Sonique Kapila, the the trustee who was assigned to try to find money, you know, ended up paying people back like four cents on the dollar or something really awful like that. Lou blew that money.
1: A federal bankruptcy judge today gave preliminary approval to a plan that would pay back investors pennies on the dollar.
0: Sion, if the judge gives final approval here at federal bankruptcy court in September, it's possible they could begin cutting checks and mailing them to some of Lou Perlman's victims by the end of this year. But Jeanette Thomas invested nearly $200,000 and will get back perhaps
1: $8,000.
0: No, it doesn't go far enough for me. I lost what I lost. Four cents on the dollar is nothing. I mean, to my retirement,
2: its 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 it's gone. When I'd heard of all the terrible things he'd done to investors, and, I mean, people in their 70s, you know, who pretty much put all their money, their, you know, their savings into these Ponzi schemes, these stocks that were worthless, it, it just broke my heart. And I'm like, how cruel can you be? What, you know, how, how greedy can you be? So it was a very... It was kind of—I was excited, screaming "Yay, yippee!" and at the same time, it kind of—I felt bad for him. You know, it's like, "Damn, why didn't she just go straight and pay these people back?" You—you you had the money, but I got to admit, there was a sad part in me remembering the Pearl that I thought I knew when I first met him—a really nice guy, this jovial, sweet little Santa Claus-like man—and uh, it was—it was bittersweet. It was bittersweet. Mm-hmm.
0: Despite his conviction and seeing his victims cry in the courtroom, Perlman never showed remorse. In fact, he may have been a little proud. When the journalist John Seabrook interviewed him a few years ago, Perlman bragged that his Ponzi scheme was superior to Bernie Madoff's. He viewed prison more as an inconvenience than a punishment. He wrote a friend from prison saying, I'm so pissed that I've been forced into this position of becoming a martyr.
3: I think that really speaks to beneath the any semblance of remorse that he showed. He was just annoyed that he had to go through all this stuff. Cause in his mind he had this scheme that was gonna be it was gonna make everything right. And he was telling his girlfriend this like from jail to this dying day, that he's like, I'm gonna get out soon, we got some ideas, we're gonna make it happen. Perlman never did pay back any of the
0: money he owed his investors, nor did he finish his full prison sentence. After eight years in prison, his diabetes and poor diet caught up with him. And on August 19, 2016, Lou Perlman died from cardiac arrest. He was 62 years old.
1: Despite his legal drama, many of his former clients paid tribute to Perlman on Twitter. NSYNC alum Justin Timberlake wrote, I hope he found some peace. God bless. Lance Bass tweeted, He may not have been a stand up businessman, but I wouldn't be doing what I love today without his influence. R.I.P. Lou. Then Chris Kirkpatrick simply tweeted, Mixed emotions right now, but R.I.P. I was glad it was over
2: the first thing that I did is I, uh, I prayed for his soul that he would repent and that God would forgive him for his sins so that he would rest in peace. That's really what I feel.
0: Between the Liner Notes is produced by me, Matthew Billy. This episode was edited by Tim Townsend and Ashley Lusk. Ashley also provided the voiceover for the Associated Press article. Huge thanks to Tyler Gray for being our guest. Please check out Tyler's book, The Hit Charade, Lou Pearlman, Boy Bands, and the Biggest Ponzi Scheme in U.S. History. Also a big thanks to Jean Tanzi Williams for sharing her stories about the Backstreet Boys. Please be sure to keep an eye out for her new boy band, Fast Four. You can find out more information about them at fastfourmusic.com, And that's the number four, not the word. Jean also just signed a production deal for her screenplay about her experiences with Pearlman. So look out for that movie as well. The instrumental tracks Fight the Sea and I Want to Destroy Something Beautiful were composed by Josh Woodward. Between the Liner Notes is distributed by the Goat Rodeo Network. For more information about the show, please visit BetweenTheLinerNotes.com, and if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or whatever application you use to listen to podcasts. Also, thanks for listening. We'll talk some more on the next Between the Liner Notes.